We've got the business of March Madness, ESPN's future, and a lot more. Motley Fool Money starts now. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool senior analysts Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, Eddie. Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. John Oran from the Sports Business Journal is our guest. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the state of play in banking. Last week, the big story was Silicon Valley Bank. And on Friday morning of this week, SVB's parent company officially filed for bankruptcy. The more intriguing story involved First Republic Bank. On Thursday, a collection of major banks, including Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup, agreed to deposit a combined $30 billion as a sign of confidence in the overall banking system. And while the deal does not include government funding, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon reportedly discussed the idea of the First Republic rescue package earlier in the week with Fed Chairman Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Matt, I will start with you. Where are we now? Oh, my gosh. Uh, what a week. Well, right now, I think, as an investor, you're watching here on a Friday, you just gave the news about the First Republic bank rescue, in, in a sense. I just think there are too many unknowns. The, the market obviously believes, investors obviously believe, that there are more problems, more shoes to drop. Because if you look at the the performance of regional banks today, and how and how they performed all week, and we get the news about Silicon Valley Bank, we got the news about First Republic. But if you look at a lot of regional banks whose deposit bases, whose loan books look a lot different from those banks, I'm talking I'm talking Regions Financial, PNC, M&T Bank. You know, in many cases, banks that have been around for more than a hundred years and been doing business, they've all been killed, and they're getting killed. And so investors are just selling first and asking questions later. And I actually don't think that's a terrible strategy when it comes to banking, because with a short-term full of unknowns, long-term, you have to believe that no matter how this comes out, there are going to be more regulations, there are going to be more costs, insurance premiums are going to go higher. What is the future for regional banks, small to mid-sized banks? I don't know if it's an investable class anymore, and that's what I'm trying to figure out, and I just don't know right now, and I don't blame the investors for selling first and asking questions later. Yeah, you hope that the intention on, on Jamie Dimon's part and, and, and the executives in the industry is, is to lend some more credibility to the, to the smaller banks. Right. Uh, it, it remains to be seen whether that's going to stick. I mean, we're clearly seeing a lack of faith in the banking system right now. I mean, they are right to try to contain this as quickly as possible. But optics matter, and, and I think that's why you're seeing these conversations between Jay Powell and Jamie Dimon and other banking executives. I mean, can you imagine the the phone conversations, like, Mr. Dimon? We have Mr. Powell on the line for us. Yeah, you tell him to hold. I, I'll get to him. I know he needs me more than I need him, right? That's kind of probably the way they're thinking right now. It might be, but I mean, we're talking about eleven major banks involved in this deal, and they are. we were talking about this earlier today. At some point. You know, this is uh, there is some self-preservation involved here. There's no question. They don't want to be in a situation that they were in 15 years ago, where 
the phone call coming from the Treasury Secretary or the Federal Reserve Chair at the time is more along the lines of, hey, I need you to buy this troubled bank, right. as opposed to, Go get some cash out of the register and deposit it into the bank. Yeah, and I mean these deposits that that were were put down for First Republic. I mean you're very you're right. I mean the return on that could could mathematically be zero for these eleven banks, right? I, I'm certain they are thinking longer term. They're thinking, listen, we got to shore these ba- these banks up. We got to keep credibility within this space, and we got to prevent this thing from really spreading. Uh, so I think they're they're absolutely taking the longer-term view here, which makes a lot of sense. And when you look at First Republic, and you think about what we've seen just over the course of one week with this bank, we've gone from everything is fine, don't worry, to, uh-oh, it's a bank run, to, up, oh, never mind, we're good, to, hey, a $30 billion backdrop from our industry peers, to, what, now we're suspending our dividend, uh, wait, now we probably are going to need to be acquired. All in the period of one week. And I will also remind you that a week ago, First Republic published an 8K on the front of their website, claiming that everything was okay. And I'll quote you some of the numbers they quoted from this 8K. They said their consumer deposits have an average account size of less than $200,000. Business deposits have an average account size of less than $500,000. Within business deposits, no one sector represents more than 9% of total deposits, with the largest being diversified real estate, Maddie. Technology-related deposits represent only 4% of total deposits. I mean, they put all of this information out there a week ago to instill confidence that clearly didn't stick. That, well, that's it. It's confidence and what you said earlier about faith in the banking system. Right now, there's there's very little right now. And and think about beyond the banks themselves. Think about the depositors. Think about small to mid-sized businesses across this country. Real estate, for one, that you mentioned. But even if you're an industrial company uh, or a health services company, you've got to likely have deposits that are uninsured at a, a, a bank, a regional bank, and you're trying to think to yourself, What's going on with my bank? Should I just do I just need to pull those deposits out? Do I just need to make sure I'm protecting? I'm protecting my balance sheet, and I think those are questions being asked all across the country. And that's why the the tentacles of this thing can really reach out really wide. Mm-hmm. And there's so much uncertainty, and we just don't know where it ends. Well, it throws a lot of just rational thinking out of the window, right? I mean, rationally, we know our deposits are protected. I mean. But, but that flies out the window during during times like these. I mean, everybody just gets into self-preservation mode yeah. and, and wants to ultimately protect themselves. And it's very understandable. It's your money. Right. Nobody should care about it more than you. And you can't ask depositors, especially individuals, to 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 analyze the, the creditworthiness of their bank. Of I'm not course. going to say, well, should I be worried about my bank, understanding what my bank's exposed to, because, gosh, my deposits can be at yeah. risk. I, it's not, you can't ask that of depositors, which makes this situation so precarious. Matty, you talked earlier about the regional banks and sort of they are, at least for the moment, in the stay away category for you personally as an investor. Where are the big banks in this? Is, are there enough question marks out there that you think, yeah, I'm not necessarily rushing to invest in those either? Well, I think because you would you would think well that's where the that's where the capital is going to flow these banks are you know higher regulatory requirements so they're going to be fine and that's maybe where I should be thinking about investing but i think the problem is the long term picture is very cloudy because you're talking about overall faith in the banking system and what the regulatory changes are going to be so even the big banks are going to probably going to face higher costs which i think is why Companies like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America are so interested in trying to prevent First Republic Bank from really going under on a, on a depositor basis because they're worried about the greater implications for their industry over time. No matter what, it's going to be costlier in the future. That makes it harder to invest. 
This week, we also got the latest data related to inflation. The Consumer Price Index and the Producer Price Index numbers for February continue the trend that we've seen for months. Inflation is cooling off. And with that, Jason, next week, all eyes are going to be on the Federal Reserve's <laughs> meeting and what they decide to do with everything related to inflation and everything related to the banks that we've talked about when it comes to, do they raise interest rates, and if so, by how much? I mean, that is going to be the topic du jour for, for these these next few days. And, and I, I think rightly so. Um, I mean, it, it's an interesting exercise to go through in your mind. We were talking about it in production. You hear you hear every perspective, and it's like, yeah, I get that. That makes sense, right? And you hear someone with the with the contrarian perspective, yeah, I get that too. It makes sense, right? It's hard to figure out exactly what they will do because this is such a unique situation, right? I mean, we've seen rates rise at such a rapid pace. I mean, it is the fastest we've seen this push in interest rates since since back to the 1980s. It's something that's not normal. Right, I mean, the last three years have not been normal, and 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 it's kind of it's kind of all coming to a head here. Uh, it does seem like we're seeing we're seeing signs that inflation is easing. Right, I mean, the, the producer price index numbers there uh, in, indicate that things could be cooling off at least a little bit. I, you know, I, I I don't know that we necessarily need to make a call, but my mind is thinking that if I was going to make a call here, I personally would probably say, you know what. Let's 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 just hold tight this time around. And the main reason why, let's not cut, let's not bump up, let's just kind of leave things the way they are right now because what we're seeing is still plenty of uncertainty, right? There's enough uncertainty to my mind that for Powell and company to be able to say they can predict the ripple effects of of their policy decisions here over the last year. For them to say they can predict these effects over the course of the next 6 months, much less 6 days. I think it would be difficult to take that very seriously. And so I think that it would make sense to just stand down and sort of reassess the next meeting. That makes sense, Jason. But I just, it's the prisoner's dilemma, right? It's like Powell's thinking to himself if I know what invest, if investors know what I'm thinking, yeah. but then they're thinking, I'm thinking this, then what are they thinking if I do this? And, it's, <laughs> yeah. and, and the thing is, if you don't, if they, if they hold Pat, like, and I think that is probably a sound thing to do given all the uncertainty, right? But if you don't raise 25 basis points, our investors going to say, "Well, wait a sec. Wait, wait. Are you are, you're saying there's a problem? Are you admitting there, that there's a yeah. problem here? I need to be worried. The, the, the Fed has changed course. Okay, there are bigger problems here than I than no. I knew about. But mathematically, there's not a huge difference, literally and figuratively, between holding pat and raising it a quarter percent. <laughs> and w- which leads to this question: We talk all the time about companies reporting earnings, and the earnings results are one thing, but the guidance is something else, and that's what guides the day. Is the language that we get out of the Fed next week more important than what they actually do? Is the press conference? And I hate to say that, but it, I, it does make me wonder. Is it essentially the Fed interest rate version of that, where it's like, whatever they do, the language around whatever they do is more important? I think I think that's right. I mean, and and it's just one of those things where it's we wordsmith we wordsmith every Fed statement, right? We look for subtle changes, word to word, you know, month to month, right? And this is going to be the ultimate one, right? Yeah. Because we're just that's what investors want to know is exactly what the Fed is thinking. And the way they disclose things, uh, and I, yeah, it's gonna be parsed to death. Yeah, it's the math, and I think this is what makes investing and what we do for a living so fun and so fascinating. Because there's the mathematics involved, right? There's the objective answer. 
but then there's the psychology that comes yeah. with it. And, 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 and that obviously is, is a much broader right. well, uh, brush. We play, we play the weighing game. We try to, at The Motley Fool, long-term weighing game. We weigh the value of stocks. But investors are voting right now yeah. in the short run. They are voting like crazy, and the, and the votes are, you know, they're, they're being counted in so many different ways right now. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, you have to ask yourself, is that psychology? It, it sure feels like there's a bit more glass half empty out there right now. Yeah. Is that is that offering up some opportunities? I mean, I think we all would agree there there probably are some opportunities that that, that are uh, starting starting to bubble up to the surface. After the break, we've got the latest in the housing industry, retail, software, and more. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. <laughs> Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. The cost-cutting that has been going on at FedEx appears to be paying off. Third-quarter profits were much higher than expected for the bellwether business, and shares of FedEx up on Friday, man. Yeah, that's the key question, Chris, for every company, actually, right now. But in FedEx in particular, it's could they cut costs fast enough and raise prices fast enough to offset you know, the big slowdown in volume that they started to see last year? And I think right now, the answer is is kind of yes, because if you look at the uh, the pricing power they're getting, uh, in, particularly in the ground and freight business segments, they saw revenue per shipment rise 11% there. Um, the guidance that they gave was was much better than expected. I mean, they were looking at a range between 13 and 14 dollars a share for the remaining of you know for the entire fiscal year. Now now ranging 14 dollars and 60 cents to 15.20, so roughly 15 dollars a share per earnings. So clearly, it's working. I just I just think. The question for FedEx is: They're doing all this this cost cutting and efficiency. Will that matter if if revenue if the top line doesn't come back? Because this is an highly you know this is an operating leverage business all the way right, and so that was that's down. They're they're still seeing big slowdown in their express business, which is the biggest part of the business, almost fifty percent of revenue. That's got to come back. Um, I think today, though, based on those earnings projections, you're getting FedEx at roughly fifteen times forward earnings. It's a below market multiple. Um, they've been raising the dividend. They were absolutely hammered last year, so you're getting a big, pretty, pretty big break there. So if volumes start to come back, the economy turns around. FedEx is a leaner, meaner machine uh, that could be producing a lot more cash flow. Shares of Adobe up seven percent this week after the software giant's first quarter results came in higher than expected. Adobe also raised guidance for the full fiscal year. That is the one-two punch we like to see. <laughs> yes, in a, in a world where budgets continue to tighten and companies are playing more defense, uh, Adobe, I think they really did report a very encouraging quarter. Um, and it's it's been a tough stretch for the business and for shareholders alike. I think really by any measure over the last several years. Uh, but revenue four point six billion dollars. It was up thirteen percent from a year ago, uh, excluding currency impacts. You saw non-GAAP earnings per share of three dollars and eighty cents. That was up uh, almost thirteen percent as well. Uh, they saw some big customer wins in the quarter with Accenture, uh, BBC, Disney, IBM, uh, Infosys, Nintendo. Uh, and it was a nice quarter for their document cloud business, which uh, grew revenue around 16% from a year ago. Uh, they, they continue to do a good job in repurchasing shares and bringing that count down. It's down about 6% from 2018. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, raising guidance, they're calling for earnings per share of $15.45 at the midpoint. And that value shares today. At around 23 times full year estimates. Historically, 
I would argue, an opportunistic look at, at this stock. Now, the wild card, the big question mark, still is this Figma acquisition. Uh, that has not happened. It's not clear that it necessarily will. Management is optimistic that it will. They they are continuing to go through uh, the, the process and, and meet the requirements that regulators are asking. They see this closing by the end of this year. Um, again, it's still still a question mark as to whether what regulators will actually let it happen. Lennar is the second largest home builder in America. First quarter profits and revenue were higher than expected. But Lennar said that orders for new homes fell. What do you make of their latest? Yeah, with the home builders and Lennar, I think right now it's a it's it's a matter of kind of balancing, you know, demand against trying to protect margins. We know demand is, is lower, obviously, and yeah, new orders were down 10%. Uh, I, I like to look at backlog, which was down 29%. Um, that's a pretty big drop. Cancellation rate was 21%. That's up from 10%, which is more typical of home builders. So the future right now is they're not building a lot of homes, or you know, not going to be delivering a lot of homes. But I think that's it's with home builders right now with Lennar, it's more about design. I think it's um, protecting sales price. Look, if you look at their average sales price of homes in the quarter. Four hundred forty-eight thousand versus four hundred fifty-seven thousand a year ago. Not not a huge drop. I think a lot of us following the housing market would say, "Wow, I expected that to be a bigger drop." So they're protecting price, protecting margin, um, and by going slower now, doing less business, they can you know they can sort of recharge when when demand returns and there's and there's uh, you know better pricing power. So tough in the short term, but you know they, Lennar makes the argument that a lot of home builders do, which I agree, which is that they're just we have a national shortage of housing still, even after this housing bubble that we saw, and it might even get exasperated. So there's still long term a, a pretty good demand outlook for for homes. The fourth quarter capped what William Sonoma called a year of record revenue and profits. Despite that, shares down a bit on Friday after the report. Jason, you look at the chart. Wall Street is not rushing to reward William Sonoma for their last twelve months. <laughs> well, maybe so, but they have rewarded them for the last three years. It's been a very good good stretch for shareholders. Uh, with shares up two hundred fifty percent over that stretch. That seems like it makes sense, though. I mean, people had a lot of money to spend over the last few years, and so I think the question really is, what does this story look like going forward? That remains to be seen because it's so dependent on the consumer. But the business itself fundamentally doing very well. Revenue was essentially flat for the quarter, and gross margin was down a good bit from a year ago. That was driven by higher shipping and freight costs, occupancy costs, whatnot. So not terribly surprising, and that ultimately resulted in earnings per share of five dollars and fifty cents, also basically flat from a year ago. But they continue to grow the business, and they are taking this business in a number of different directions. You see e-commerce that now represents fully two-thirds of overall revenue. And I think a neat dynamic that probably most investors aren't considering is the company's B2B business, right? The business-to-business. These these consumers you're talking about, uh, Williams-Sonoma being a furnishings company for restaurants and hotels and football stadiums, they're growing this business considerably, uh, closing in on a billion dollars in revenue for the company, and, and grew 27% from a year ago. So, I think putting that together, the share count down better than 20% over, over the last five years as well. Again, a lot depends on the future of the consumer here, but this is a business that's being run very well. All right, Jason Moser, Matt Argersinger. Guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. March Madness is exciting for sports fans, but is it translating into ad dollars for the TV networks? We'll get into that and more with our guest, John O'Rand, right after the break. This is Motley Fool Money.
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. As March Madness gets underway and Major League Baseball is just around the corner, seems like a really good time to check in on the business angles related to the sports world with our friend John Oren. He covers media for the Sports Business Journal, and he joins me now from Washington, D.C. John, thanks for being here. Anytime, Chris. So it occurred to me this week that every year before the Super Bowl, there's a lot of conversation around the advertising. And some of that is because there's genuine excitement about what are the ads going to be, the creative of advertising. But a lot of it is about the money and how much the network is going to make off of a 30-second commercial, that sort of thing. And this week, for the first time, I started to think, well, wait a minute. The NCAA basketball tournament is a big event that lasts for the entire month. How are the economics for the networks involved in the NCAA basketball tournament? Because my hunch is they're looking pretty good. They are looking great. Uh, in, in fact, Turner and the, the NCAA tournament is, is so unique. The Super Bowl, you know, Fox had it this year. Fox sold the advertising this year, and it's network by network. The tournament is shared by CBS and by Turner. And you have the ad sales groups for each network who usually are competing against each other, now working together. And it has been working out really well uh, this year to where they brought in a record haul of revenue, uh, more than a billion dollars in, in just advertising revenue. And the advertising around the NCAA tournament doesn't have as much panache as, say, the, uh, the, the, the Super Bowl, where people wait and look. But they are unique. They have, you know, th these these uh, commercials that star a lot of the talent. And so you'll see Samuel Jackson, Jackson, Charles Barkley, and Jim Nance, you know, like, you know, on a road trip. And you know, they there are different uh, commercial campaigns that are really just launched off of uh, off the NCAA tournament. And so the, the business behind not just the tournament, but all of college basketball this season has been uh, has been really healthy. Well, I, I remember when you and I talked last year, and we'll talk more broadly about ESPN in a minute, but I remember you saying when we talked last year that one of the best television deals when it comes to the rights of live sports is ESPN's deal with the NCAA. And if you think, John, not just about the men's basketball tournament, but the women's basketball tournament and the, the compelling storylines there, it, it, it really does seem like uh, the economics are working out very well for the television networks. Oh, and especially that, that ESPN does not pay for the women's basketball tournament. They pay for this whole bucket of rights that include everything from like college rowing that they stream to uh, college lacrosse to the, uh, uh, the, the college world series and the NCAA women's basketball tournament. What makes me so bullish about the next uh, couple of weeks with the, uh, with March madness is that there's been, you know, over the last decade, uh, two decades, college basketball has struggled somewhat. Uh, the the play isn't nearly as good. You have people going directly from high school to the to the NBA or staying for one season and then going. So the the idea of having like a Coach K with with a a player for three or four years and building like a really good high quality team uh, that hasn't worked. Well, that that doesn't exist anymore. And ratings generally have been soft. Like the the March Madness is so popular, the theory was that it devalued regular season. Well, this season, uh, Fox set an all time record with viewership. 
CBS was up. ESPN was up. Fox had the most watched basketball game in its history. And on the women's side, uh, ESPN had the most watched women's game in in history uh, as well, South Carolina game. And uh, ratings were also up uh, over there. So everything is, is working out really well. The business behind college basketball and for the 2022-23 season was uh, very healthy. Let's move on to baseball because a year ago at this time, you and I were talking about the animosity between the MLB players and owners. There were serious questions about whether the season would start on time. Here we are a year later, and the story is about the rules changes implemented to speed up the game. Do you think, you know, the early reviews are good. And I'm wondering if you think this is going to translate into higher ratings for all of the networks involved in Major League Baseball. I I think that's uh, almost a certain bet that that's going to happen. Reports coming out of spring training, and it's it's hard to look at spring training and see if it's going to translate to regular season. But the reports are they cut off about a half hour of game time. Uh, There have been viral videos about uh, a pitcher that gets all, all three outs in an inning in the same time it took uh, a pitcher two seasons ago to, to make one pitch, you know, so the, the game moves a, a lot quicker and there's, there's different pacing and that translates uh, to, to television as well. There's an expectation because they got rid of the shift and they increased the size of the bases. And that matters because you're going to get more stolen bases. You're going to get more people trying to leg out doubles. And there's going to be more exciting plays uh, in in the field than kind of the traditional home runner strikeout, uh, which has been been a problem for the last little bit. TV networks expect the the ratings uh, nationally to to increase. uh, um, I don't know what significantly is, but they expect them to be up. Uh, from from last year the only it's baseball so of course there's a red flag right chris uh the only red flag right now is uh locally where uh, diamond sports uh which owns all the valley sports rsns and has um deals with uh, with uh close to i think it's 17 close to 20 um major league baseball teams they filed for bankruptcy there then there's warner brothers discovery which owned four regional sports networks, including the Pirates in, in Pittsburgh and the Rockies in Denver. And they've put, told teams that they're just going to walk away from, from this. And then the, the, the rights are going to revert back to, to baseball. So right now, everybody's still going to be able to see those games locally. But how that how that transpires and how that, that, that what what happens in July and August is a question that I'm going to be uh, uh, reporting on for, you know, until July or August. Well, and it seems like part of the challenge for Major League Baseball and the networks at a national level is um, one is the length of the game. And so if you live on the East Coast, you're unlikely to stay up for a West Coast game um, if the East Coast game takes three and a half hours. So, you know, they're addressing the timing challenge. But it, it seems like it could have a good ripple effect when you think about some of the biggest stars in Major League Baseball are on the West Coast. Yeah, and the, and the idea that I could see possibly the first half of a game with the Mike Trout in, in Anaheim or all the stars, Manny Machado's in San Diego, the Dodgers have a stock team again. And they've been, you know, those have been games that had started at, uh, on the East Coast at 10 p.m. and end well after midnight, well, well after 1 a.m. There are not a lot of 
uh, friends of mine in the East Coast that, that are, are <laughs> committed to, to stay up to the end of those games. One other change since the last time you and I talked. Bob Iger is back as the CEO of Disney. One of the big questions he is being asked about are the company's plans for Hulu. And increasingly, a question he's getting asked about is the fate of ESPN. What are you hearing, and where do you think this story is going? The question about ESPN has been around for uh, uh, for, for a while, and, it, and it's funny because from the early 2000s to right before the pandemic, that that's a that, that's a question that would have been laughed at because ESPN drove that entire business. Well, with cord cutting and the the rights fees that that ESPN is is, is paying out, all of a sudden, like ESPN is um its profits are not coming in as wildly uh, um, steep as as they had been. So what uh, what Iger has decided to do is you know he he took Disney and he and he basically cut it into three different parts, and one of those parts is is ESPN. So ESPN is almost like it's still a part of Disney, of course, but it's almost like a standalone company right now where it's uh, responsible for its revenues, for its profits, for its uh, for its expenditures, and it has to exist on, on its own. And people with inside ESPN insist to me that that is not a step toward selling this, this piece of ESPN. Rather, uh, Bob Iger is totally committed to ESPN. Bob Iger... And Jimmy Pitaro, who runs ESPN, have an extremely close relationship. I would be very surprised if anything happens within the next two years of uh, of uh, Disney sort of unwinding ESPN from its uh, from its books. And and not only would I be surprised, but my my sources were generally on target would be dead wrong. Does the increase of non traditional broadcast companies? Apple Plus, Amazon getting into live sports. Does that increase the pressure on Iger and his team to get this right? A little bit. I, I, I will say that that's a trend that I've been writing about a ton. Because you, you look, Amazon has Thursday night football. Apple, of course, just did a major league soccer deal. I think that there's a big question mark about the appetite for Amazon and for Apple to do these volume deals that ESPN has been known for. Like, uh, like uh, Amazon really likes having Thursday night football, one package of one game a week of the NFL. If you look at what, what Amazon does in England, they have a couple of really unique deals with the uh, English Premier League, uh, including the Boxing Day games. You know, on December 26th, every, every Premier League uh, team plays a game they bought that package of games. So you have to go to, to Amazon to, to, to watch that. Amazon isn't particularly interested in having all of the college basketball that ESPN has, like all of the, um, you know, you name the sport, all the NBA, they would like an NBA deal and they would like an NBA package, but they don't, they don't want all that volume uh, that, that ESPN has. And th there's also, while there's an unmistakable trend going towards streaming, I will tell you that in 2033, you will you will be watching the NFL on broadcast television. 2028, the Stanley Cup uh, playoffs, every single game will be available on linear television. The NBA deal that's coming up, they're they're uh, redoing a deal that their rights are up in 2025. I guarantee you that their championship series 
will be on broadcast television until the the end of that. So th this isn't a Netflix situation where they're, they're, they pretty much decimated the entertainment programming on cable. This is a situation where the sports leagues still need that reach that traditional linear television uh, provides. Well, I know you're a proud graduate of the University of Maryland. So uh, as March Madness heats up, good luck to both the men's and the women's teams. I think I'll be happier with, with the women's results uh, than the men's. <laughs> you can hear him every week on the Sports Media Podcast with Andrew Marchand of the New York Post. John Oren, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Coming up after the break, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger return. They got a couple of stocks on their radar, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Matt Argusinger and Jason Moser. We talked earlier in the show about interest rates and what the Fed might be doing next week. And let's face it, when interest rates rise, that is a good thing for certain industries. Our investing team has put together a special report highlighting five stocks they think are fit for this environment right now. And it's free just for trying out Motley Fool Stock Advisor, which comes with its own membership feedback guarantee. So, you get 30 days to decide whether Stock Advisor is a good fit for you. And even if you cancel, the special report is yours to keep. Just go to fool.com interest to get your copy of the report entitled, Top Stocks for Rising Interest Rates. Again, go to fool.com interest. On Thursday, Google announced the price of YouTube TV is going higher. For those unfamiliar, YouTube TV is Google's answer to cable television subscription packages, and the cost is moving from $65 a month to $73. And Matt, Google's reason is pretty simple. Content costs are going up, so the price of YouTube TV is going up. Makes total sense. It does. I mean, and, and I, I doubt, and I, we have Jason here, who's a, a subscriber himself, I doubt many or subscribers are going to cut the... I guess I'm not cutting the cord. What do you do with YouTube TV? <laughs> Turn off the subscription? Yeah. You cut the cord? Well, but anyway, no. I think that's I think that's fascinating. I, and I think you know, the cable bundle in a way is is kind of come back a little bit with YouTube TV and, and Hulu TV and, and others. But what I've heard, and I'm not a subscriber, is that it's it's a much better experience. It's more seamless. It's good good quality, good content. And by the way, we know that YouTube TV won the NFL ticket uh, contract. So. Obviously, that's probably going to be an additional cost from what you get just with the basic YouTube TV package. But I'm intrigued by it, um, and especially to see what kind of impact the pricing increase is going to have. Jason, um, I don't have YouTube TV, but I'm an Alphabet shareholder, so I approve of this move. <laughs> me too, me too. And a small correction, I am a subscriber to Hulu Live. Not oh, I'm sorry, that's but right. But very same thing yeah, with the same dynamic playing. Great service, but those costs just continue to go up. I mean, they have raised the price, I think, every year since we started subscribing about six years ago. But we continue to pay it because it is a very good service that gives us access to virtually everything we want to watch. Mm. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Matt Argusinger, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Chris, I can't take my eyes off Charles Schwab, ticker SCHW. Now, we talked earlier in the show about you know the regional banks. Charles Schwab is not a regional bank, but A, it does own a bank and operates a bank. But this is a blue chip company 
in the brokerage space. Uh, for investing services, it's an incredibly recognizable brand and incredibly sticky as well. I mean, it's one thing if you're a customer at a bank and you're going to pull your deposits out. Are you going to do that you know, for, uh, in your brokerage account, in your retirement accounts with Charles Schwab? Probably not. Um, so, this makes Schwab's business far more stickier. On the bank that they own and operate, more than 80% of their total bank deposits fall within FDIC insurance limits. Their bank loan and deposit ratio is just 10%. For the average bank, it's over 60%. So, I don't understand why Schwab is being thrown out in the bathwater, so to speak. It's down more than 30% in a week, five, essentially five years' worth of gains wiped out uh, in, a, in a second. So, it's caught my attention. I'm not saying it's a fantastic opportunity. I'd like to learn more, but it's got my attention. Dan, question about Charles Schwab? Not really a question, Chris, but I'd like to commend Matt's bravery on picking a $100 billion company for stocks on our radar today. Well, you know, it's not every day, Dan, that a $100 billion company falls 30% in a week. I was going to say, I mean, a week ago, it was uh, a much higher than $100 billion. Right. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week? Yeah, digging a little bit more into Zebra Technologies, ticker is ZBRA. Zebra provide they provide enterprise asset intelligence solutions. Isn't that a mouthful, Dan? Um, in the automatic identification and data capture industry, and so ultimately the business itself is divided into two parts. There's the asset intelligence and tracking side. They sell things like the printers that produce those high quality barcodes and labels, uh, and then you also have the enterprise visibility and mobility segment. And they sell mobile computing products, barcode scanners, RFID, right? That's radio frequency ID, Dan. Uh, readers, machine vision cameras, all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, this is a company, they're poised to benefit from strong tailwinds in the coming years when you look at things like IoT, cloud based data analytics, uh, intelligent automation, mobility, computer vision. I could go on and on, Dan, but I'll stop there. Uh, real quick before I go to Dan, uh, is this one of those businesses that is competing against? larger tech companies that have their own version of what Zebra is doing. I'm thinking about a company like Honeywell. Seems like they would have their version of this. It absolutely can. You definitely will see some homegrown solutions, but it is a very, very big market. Dan, question about Zebra Technologies? Not really a question, again. <laughs> sorry, gang. But I'm really loving the the trend that Jason is bringing kind of boring tech companies that do a good job at what they do to stocks on our radar. You're very welcome, Dan. I mean, we say this all the time. Boring is beautiful, right? When it comes to investing, boring is beautiful. Yeah, but I got, I got kind of a backhanded compliment from Dan. <laughs> so, Jason got a real compliment. I, I don't know how I feel about this. Well, you know, Dan's been storing these up. Well, you know, he's been on leave recently. He's back from that. So, he's, you know... He's back to form. He's back to form. Uh, Dan... Two very different businesses. You got one you want to add to your watch list? You know, I'm actually going to go uh, Charles Schwab this time because because ah. you guys are right. Not every day does a hundred plus billion dollar company fall thirty percent for what feels like you know not really earned motives or reasons there. So I think Schwab's very interesting. Right on, Dan. I'm just concerned that when Matt said he can't take his eyes off Charles Schwab, that we're going to get like an angry email from <laughs> Mrs. Schwab. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Man, Chuck, Chucky is pretty attractive. Old home wrecking Argersinger over here. <laughs> All right, Jason Moser, Matt Argersinger, guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.